Hello, this is Zach Twomley from When Diplomacy Fails Podcast. But you're not listening to When Diplomacy Fails Podcast. Oh no. You're listening to A History of World War II by Ray Harris. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. As you know, Audible is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks. With over 100,000 titles to choose from, everyone can find something to love. But for now, you can try it for free with a free audiobook and a trial membership. At any time, you can go to audibletrial.com slash ww2 or to my website, worldwar2podcast.net, and click on the Audible link. Sign up for a free 30-day trial and select a free audiobook. I have recommendations, of course, but get what you like. You can either keep the membership or not, but you keep the free audiobook. This time, I would like to recommend Triumph by Jeremy Schapp. This is the story of Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. Uh, it's an amazing story. It starts out with uh, Jesse Owens' high school and his college days. And uh, it shows him building up. He starts in the south and then his family moves to the north. And it's interesting because um, Jesse has flaws and you can see them in the story. He comes from nothing. And then when he starts to make something of himself, he um, gives in to things that he shouldn't have. But he eventually gets his uh, life straight and he's about to try out for the Olympics. And then the story stops and the author does a really good job of giving you an idea of what America was like in 1935 when they were trying to decide if they should boycott the Olympics because it was being held in Nazi Germany. So it does a great job with that. And then, of course, he passes through the trials and he's on his way to Berlin. Uh, the author does a really good job of showing and comparing the rules and laws about Jews in Nazi Germany with what African Americans had to put up with here in America, the Jim Crow laws. Obviously, things were getting better in America and things were getting worse in Nazi Germany. Um, so he gets over there and there's a lot of um, poignant stories. You get to meet a lot of the people, a lot of the other athletes. And then, of course, there's all the amazing things he does uh, by setting the records, the different number of gold medals that he wins. So since the Olympics just ended, I went back and I got this, and uh, it was really a great story. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 58, Battle of Britain Day. By the 9th of September, the air battle between Nazi Germany and Great Britain was at a tipping point. Something had to give. Time was running out for the Germans, and the British were losing experienced pilots at an unacceptable rate. Either the Germans would be forestalled for the year, or the British would lose their ability to put up an effective defense against a German invasion. But even though this war had to have a winner and loser, the factors influencing the contest were manyfold. Hitler did not want to rush into anything, and he didn't have to. Europe was already his. He had never been enthused about a channel crossing, and making a mistake here might affect his larger and more important goal, the destruction of communism and dealing with the Slavs to the east. These would both be accomplished by invading the Soviet Union. Downing was willing to trade British lives for German ones, but he wanted it done efficiently, 
with the British losing fewer men than the Germans with each clash. This was the only way to stop the invasion. It was either that or occupation. Goering was preoccupied with his reputation and his standing with his Fuhrer. He had failed at Dunkirk, had failed to destroy fighter command thus far, so now had to hope that obliterating British civilians would end his string of humiliations. And finally, Keith Park of Eleven Group had done amazingly well so far. Despite the odds and the numbers against him, he had been able to manifest Dowding's vision. But now the Luftwaffe had changed their tactics, while increasing the number of planes coming over against his pilots. In essence, the Germans were narrowing their attack, so Park was forced to increase and yet narrow his defense. This provided him a chance to take out more bombers, but the price would probably be losing more fighters. The margin of error for him and everyone else was razor thin. And everyone knew the invasion order had to be given soon, or not at all for that year. It was no secret that it came down to tides and mastery of the air. But again, Hitler was in no hurry. He wanted it done correctly, with minimal loss. His focus was turning to the husbanding of his forces for the East. So the current thinking and latest gambit was that balmy London would divide the people from the government. In short, to make the people a burden for Churchill. But in this, Hitler, who never understood the British, was completely wrong. Once the civilians became the Luftwaffe's target, those who still turned away from Churchill rushed to him. They were all now in this together. The current date decided on for the invasion was on or about September 20th, but that meant that the word had to be given by the Supreme Commander by the 11th, just two days from now. The OKL, or Oberkommando der Luftwaffe, was doing its part by ordering round-the-clock bombing on London as of the 9th. For them, this was the invasion moving ahead. Still, most hoped, but only in their diaries, that the night bombing would be enough and crossing the channel would become unnecessary. For himself, Gehring believed fighter command was down to their last 200 or so fighters. As proof, he pointed to the relatively small response by the British two days ago on the 7th, when London was the main target for the first time. Strangely, he didn't see their ill-timed and relatively weak response for what it was, confusion by the unexpected change in tactics. The weather on the 9th had turned to rain and thunder, but Kesselring was beyond allowing Mother Nature to dominate events. He was running out of time. So reconnaissance flights and smaller raids dominated the morning. And when it became clear that the weather wasn't going to improve, there was no point in further waiting. At 4.05 p.m., a large formation was plotted over Calais, and by 4.55 p.m., it came over just west of North Foreland, in the extreme southeast corner of Britain. The plan was to bomb southern London and then move on to the airfield at Farnborough and the Brooklyn's factories further west.
On the way, Canterbury was bombed and Tangmere was strafed. The sortie lasted for hours, and eight squadrons, along with a big wing from Duxford, responded to the raid. The individual or paired squadrons tried to peel away the escorts before the bombers got to London, and the big wing made contact over Croydon. But the 100-plus bombers remained safe, covered by the 200 or so fighters. Still, the British fighters did manage to nudge the German formation south of their intended flight path, and only about 25 bombers made it to central London. As usual, the experienced squadrons fared well, giving more than they got. But 607 Squadron, only having arrived at Tangmere on the 1st, lost three of the six pilots who died that day, and five of the 19 planes lost by the British. The Luftwaffe lost 28 aircraft that day, and for Kesselring, it was the same pattern all over. The more planes he sent over, the more he lost. Total reported losses to date were now 595 for the Allies and 965 for the Luftwaffe. That night, the attacks started around 8 p.m., but intensified after 2.30 a.m. However, the German bombers were now plotted coming from Cherbourg and the Dutch coast. The raids before midnight struck at South Wales, Bristol, and the Midlands, as well as Liverpool. But then, London became their main target, as bombs were dropped over the east end, but also landed in the southeast and southern districts of the capital. Fire spread, and the organized fire brigades did what they could. Again, it appeared that railway centers and industrial areas were the hoped-for targets. Meanwhile, in Africa, Marshal Rodolfo Graziani finally relents and agrees to get his advance on Egypt underway. Mussolini had asked him earlier to move forward to test the British defenses, but Graziani stayed put. Then Il Duce ordered him to do so. But again, the crafty marshal countered by suggesting that if they wait for the invasion of Britain to start, their task, his task, would be so much the easier. But the invasion was postponed, and then postponed some more. And Mussolini wanted equal footing with Hitler. He wanted his African empire. So the marshal was threatened with replacement. And after all, he did have an overwhelming number of men, equipment, and aircraft. The few planes Major General O'Connor of the British had to hold back the Italians were the less capable gladiators. So, giving in, the Italian 10th Army started its move toward the British defensive line, just inside Libya. Waiting, the British knew that they were outmanned, outgunned, and now that their senior partner in the desert, the French, were out of the war. It was the British forces standing alone, just like in Europe. But things can always get worse, especially in war, and for the British, they're about to. Vichy France learned of de Gaulle's plans for Dakar, so they responded by sending three destroyers and three cruisers to protect the port. The rain and clouds returned on Tuesday, September 10th, and were even heavier than the day before. So, like other rainy days, 
mainly reconnaissance flights were sent out, and the British responded, but were unable to locate these relatively easier targets due to poor visibility. By the afternoon, the Germans had given up for the day and started planning for their bombing that night. So, right before dusk, bombers with incendiaries were sent out. They attempted to light the way for the bombers coming later, but were deflected by fighter command. Losses for the day were nil for the RAF and three for the Luftwaffe. Total reported losses to date was still 595 for the RAF and 968 for the Luftwaffe. That night, many smaller raids crossed the Channel, and although London was their main target, South Wales and Liverpool were bombed as well. But the bombs did their job, as many fires had to be battled by organized units throughout the southern and eastern parts of the capital. At Brentwood alone, over 1,000 incendiary bombs were dropped, which started many small fires that soon grew. By 4.30 a.m., the bombers were clear of the island, and the people below were left to reorganize what remained to them. During this rained-out day, Park reviewed the actions of the day before and realized that only 12 of the 20 squadrons sent up actually intercepted the Luftwaffe. There were reasons and excuses, but in the end, it simply did not matter, and it had to be overcome. He needed German casualties, not only for the morale boost it would generate, but simply he needed the consequences to be so horrific for the Germans, they would consider calling off or be unable to invade. The Germans were now sending over large numbers of organized formations, so Park knew that he had to do the same. That day, he ordered pairs of like squadrons to work together. From now on, when possible, two pairs of Spitfire squadrons would go after the German escorts, while a pair of Hurricanes went after the bombers. There would be a lead squadron and a following one, but everyone was to know the details of any mission, thereby reducing potential confusion and increasing the chances of a sortie's success. Just north of Park, Douglas Barter was meeting with Lee Mallory, and they shared the view that their big wing wasn't big enough to get the job done. Not the way they collectively envisioned it. Clearly, more Spitfires were needed to keep the German escorts at bay so the bombers could be ravaged, the goal of the big wing. So Lee Mallory gave Barter 611 and 74 squadrons, both equipped with the Spitfire Mark II to add to his wing. Now they just had to wait. Meanwhile, in Berlin, Hitler was told of the weather and resulting inaction over the channel, as well as the equally dreary forecast. And in his head, he probably heard Goering's oft-repeated excuse. Too bad the weather was stopping his Luftwaffe from destroying fighter command. So, reluctantly, or maybe not, the Nazi leader postponed his decision regarding sea line until the 14th, three days later than he was supposed to. Equally muddled was the relationship between Britain and Vichy France, but they had agreed on to forestall any accidental clash to inform each other of movements through the Straits of Gibraltar. 
So Vichy told their former ally that three French cruisers would be approaching the strait. But the British failed to realize what this may mean for de Gaulle and the British troops with him, all heading for Dakar. Meanwhile, in North Africa, the 10th Italian Army slowly advances towards the Egyptian border. The aggressors immediately run into problems of organization and communication with their armored units, and this allows the British to slowly retreat while harassing the Italian infantry with feints, flanking attacks, and mine laying. Wednesday, September the 11th, saw mostly fine weather with localized showers and haze over the channel. But now that the weather had improved, it was time to test the remaining strength of fighter command. Were the British down to their last 200 fighters or not? It was decided that the best way to test this was to launch two attacks simultaneously and see what happened. The first part of the day was mostly reconnaissance flights to size up the targets and nuisance raids to further exhaust the British pilots. The real attacks came that afternoon. First, 300 bombers came on in two separate waves from KG-1 or Camp Geschwalder-1 and KG-26. They were sent over with 200 fighters as escorts. Crossing over, they harassed Kent and then flew up the Thames. Dowding and Park would have found it interesting that Kesselring had to cobble together two KGs in order to have enough bombers for a large raid. Nine squadrons rose to attack the large formation, but because some were launched late, the Germans had the height and the British suffered accordingly. The bombers got through to London's east end. A big wing had come over from Duxford and met the raiders over Kent, but none of the British fighters could get through the fighter screen. However, the 109s quickly used up their fuel in this battle and soon had to head for home. The ME-110s went into a holding pattern over Croydon, just south of central London, and waited to escort the bombers home. Meanwhile, sweeping 109s to the west were directed to join up with the bombers heading towards London. But the bombers were alone long enough for Park to get at them. By the time the Germans were heading home, at least 10 bombers were missing, and many dozens had suffered some level of damage. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, 
visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. During all this, further west, Erbopunsgrup 210, which had been relocated to Cherbourg, made their way across the channel. Their target, if destroyed, had the potential to end Fighter Command's ability to continue to wage an effective defense. 210 was going after the Spitfire factory at Woolston, on Southampton Water. The Mark IIs were being made elsewhere, but Fighter Command's major weapon at this point was the Mark I, and the bulk of them were made around 210's target area. As usual, the ME-110 fighter bombers of 210 came in low and fast. Their bombs fell around 4.13 p.m., and then they headed for home, untouched by fighter command. Damage was done, but could have been more intense. The real problem, however, was that the wrong target had been hit. Instead, they hit the Cunlife Owen Works, which built Hudson's for Coastal Command. After a reconnaissance flight later that afternoon, Erbo Poon's group knew they would be going back. That day, September 11th, was one of the Luftwaffe's better days, as they were able to inflict more damage than they received. Losses for the day were 25 for the RAF, which included two Blemens that had escorted British bombers over Calais. The Luftwaffe lost 11 bombers seven ME-110s, and only three 109s, for a total of 21 aircraft. Reported losses to date were 620 and 989, respectively. One of the downsides of using a big wing, although not known at the time, was that several fighters would hit, chase, or claim the same German bombers as they dropped from the sky. And while it's probably true that each claimant scored a hit, only one of them probably caused the required damage and therefore deserved the victory. But by the end of the day, RAF pilots claimed 87 victims. Park knew this was poppycock, but that mattered little to a grateful nation. That evening, with these numbers being passed around the capital and the island on the whole, Churchill broadcasted a message to the people. And you can hear that speech at the end of this episode. In it, the Prime Minister spoke of Hitler's main problem in trying to win mastery of the air, as well as successfully invade the home island. He proposed that, if Hitler went on with his air war, he would end up destroying his air force due to the amount of planes lost since early July. However, if he didn't win the air war, then it would be foolhardy to launch an invasion. This was the, quote, crux of the whole war, unquote. He then urged the people to hang in there for a few more weeks. Time and the weather were working against their tormentors. He continued that thought by saying, the result of bombing civilians has had the exact opposite effect Hitler intended. The British people now realized that they were all in this together. A bomb could land on anyone at any time. No one was safe. 
That night, the Luftwaffe changed their tactics by sending over many small and single bomber units. And this may have helped the fire brigades deal with the relatively small fires. But the sheer number of structures hit in London and on Merseyside were overwhelming. So, September 11th was a dark day for fighter command. But that morning held events equally ominous for other British soldiers. At 8.35 a.m., three cruisers and three destroyers of Vichy France passed through the Straits of Gibraltar. They had been spotted earlier by HMS Hotspur, but moving at 25 knots, were unable to be intercepted by the British fleet at Gibraltar. Now, however, it became apparent to the British the destination of the foreign fleet. So at four o'clock that afternoon, HMS Renown, along with three destroyers, headed out to catch the French ships. For now, their orders were only to make sure that the French did not make it south of Casablanca. But fate stepped in, and the French stopped at that very port city to refuel. Their plans were to be on their way by morning. Heavy rain and clouds returned to the Channel and Great Britain for the next two days, which limited the Luftwaffe to reconnaissance flights and nuisance raids, when they could find a target. The British were equally hampered, sending up fighters to hunt down the Germans, but rarely finding them in the clouds. Still, each of these washed-out days had occurrences of note. At 4 a.m. that morning of the 12th, the three French cruisers left Casablanca without their destroyer escorts. They hoped the British would be fooled by this. But the British task force, headed by HMS Renown, now joined by three more destroyers, continued their frantic search for the French ships. Later that day, back over London, bombs from a single German bomber fell through the thick cloud layer and landed on Buckingham Palace. The Royal Chapel was in shambles. But this possible blow to morale became a boon for the worsening relationship between the East Enders taking the brunt of the bombing and the royal family. Afterward, the Queen stoically replied that now she and her husband could look the East End in the face. They did, and they were loved all the more for it. Britain was now as united as they were ever going to be in the face of harm and destruction. Pilot Ginger Lacey was credited for shooting down the offensive German bomber. But in truth, his dogfight had happened hours later in the day. Another moment of courage on the 12th came from Royal Engineers Lieutenant R. Davies and Sapper J. Wiley as they defused an unexploded bomb that had landed at St. Paul's Cathedral the night before. It buried itself 30 feet underground, and it severed a gas line. Later, the bomb was taken out and detonated at Hackney Marshes, where it left a crater 100 feet wide. The two men were awarded the George Cross, the first military personnel to be so honored. Bombing that night was light, and there was little damage to industrial centers. But casualties picked up among the civilians, as 168 were killed 
and at least 600 more were injured. Of note, on the 13th, pressure was kept on London by single bombers coming over, about seven every hour. This continued into the night, but after sundown, the bombing of the capital spread out, and areas not hit before were attacked. In North Africa, the Italians recaptured Fort Campuzo, near the Libyan-Egyptian border. The British had taken it from Italy in June, and now morale zoomed among the blackshirts. Then the advanced units cut the barbed wire and crossed the border. The invasion of Egypt had begun. By the morning of September 14th, the RAF had lost one aircraft in the last two days, and the Luftwaffe, eight. Total reported losses to date were 621 and 997, respectively. The weather had improved slightly by the 14th, and as usual, Kesselring waited to see if it would improve further by limiting himself to reconnaissance flights and nuisance raids during the morning. When it became clear that clouds and localized rain was what he was stuck with, Kesselring acted. But the 14th of September would be important for what the day's events set into motion, rather than the events themselves. The Luftwaffe launched two major raids that day, one around 3 p.m. of 150 aircraft, and the second around 6 p.m. of about 100 aircraft. Each time, the bombers and their escorts harassed airfields along the way, but their main target was London. Ten squadrons rose to intercept, and for the RAF, it went as before. The Sprogs, or new pilots, ended up being most of the victims of the 109s, while the more experienced British fighters were able to keep the vast majority of the German bombers from their target. Because of this, RAF airfields, which had been able to reorganize and rest their pilots, were hit as the frustrated bombers made for home. The day would end with each side losing 14 aircraft. Total reported losses to date were 635 and 1,011, respectively. In Berlin, Hitler had been discussing the overall situation with Erhard Milch, Deputy Air Minister, and Luftwaffe Chief of Staff Jezinek, since the day before. Misreading the military tea leaves, they determined that fighter command had been severely weakened. Their proof was the fewer-than-expected British interceptions of the last week. In truth, the clouds holding back the Luftwaffe also made it near impossible for the British fighters to find German bombers, even though radar confirmed their proximity. As for the formerly pessimistic Grand Admiral Eric Rader, he informed Hitler that the Navy was ready. The barges were in place, and although only half of them had engines, a way had been figured out to use all of them to carry troops. To protect them, the flank mine barges had been readied by the Schnellboots. Optimism was rising in Berlin. The Admiral finished with, if air superiority can be achieved, then he felt confident that a foothold could be gained in England. Clearly, Raider had come a long way since July. Hitler, like many of his top generals, was convinced that if they could land enough troops and armor on British soil, 
then the following battle would be short and successful. The vision of this was too tempting. Just one more push in the air. Then the invasion could go forward. And when the promising forecast was brought to Hitler, he decided to give it the one more chance they all thought would do the trick. Operation Sea Lion was not over. Not yet. Meanwhile, off the coast of West Africa, British aircraft carrier HMS Ark Royal, along with cruisers HMS Devonshire and HMAS Australia, were patrolling 300 miles north of Dakar, hoping to prevent the three French cruisers from reinforcing the Vichy troops at the port city. However, the cruisers were already there. And over in North Africa, the 10th Italian Army moved slowly into Egypt. The British, under Major General O'Connor, had prepared an impressive ambush at the end of their rail line at Mirsa Matru. O'Connor's men had been drilled and honed to perfection. They eagerly awaited the oncoming Italians. As dawn rose on September 15th, the clouds that had hung over London had been gently pushed away by a light westerly breeze. The sun was out and the temperature was a comfortable 57 degrees Fahrenheit. In other words, it was going to be a beautiful late summer day. But it started badly for 11 Group Commander Keith Park. As he was sharing a breakfast with his wife Dahl, she took the opportunity to casually mention it was her birthday. Whether the group commander blustered his way through or groveled is not known, but it seems she let him off the hook by mentioning that a good bag of German aircraft would be an excellent present. Walking through and then beyond his back garden, Park entered the bunker at RAF Uxbridge. The day started like any other. Each sector station had one squadron ready, and the plotters were following German reconnaissance flights. But then, around 10.30 a.m., the Prime Minister made it known he would like to drop by. For the next 30 minutes, nothing happened. Some of the wasps knitted, the men looked around, quiet, and Churchill gave off an unhappy aura, because Park explained, for the nth time, that the Prime Minister could not smoke his Havana in the control room. The narrowed world Park had been living in since July, may have forgotten his wife's birthday, but he knew how many planes he had to do his job. There were 126 Spitfires and Hurricanes in 10 Group to his west, 194 of them in 12 Group to his north. He had 310 in 11 Group, and if needed, there were 172 more acting as a strategic reserve in 13 Group further north. So much for fighter command being down to their last 200 planes, as well as their last 50 Spitfires. Opposing this, Kesselring had 500 bombers, 120 ME-110s, and just over 500 ME-109s. Simply, there was no room for mistakes from either side. Not waiting until the afternoon, as had become the norm, Kesselring started his attacks that morning. He would see what was with Fighter Command. No rain or clouds. No excuses. 
he would make them show their hand. So, 25 bombers from KG-76, led by the veteran Alois Lindmar, took off at 10.10 a.m. They started crossing the channel, and their escorts took off at 11 a.m. It wouldn't take long for the fighters to catch up to the bombers. At 11.04 a.m., Churchill watched a waff lay down her knitting and place a small wooden block on the plotting table. The hostile force it denoted was at least 30 strong. Park stared at the marker and must have asked himself, was this the real thing? Or maybe just fighters flying slowly to appear as bombers. Best to be safe. He ordered 92 and 72 squadrons from Biggin Hill to take off and hold over Canterbury at 25,000 feet. Canterbury, located north of Dover, in the far southeast corner of Britain, was the right place to be, in case the German formation intended to fly up the Thames or strafe the RAF airfields in the area. Both sides had made their opening moves. Back in the Uxbridge control room, the first marker was followed by two more. One denoted a formation of 30-plus, the other 40-plus. Park now knew this was the real thing. At 11.15, he spoke out loud. Northolt, Kenley, Debden. Their squadrons were to be launched. He could see nothing else on the board, but kept his reserves in place. Still, this raid had to be met with force, hence the three additional sector stations. Park waited five more minutes, and still there were no additional plots. He was determined to deflect and destroy the bombers coming over. He then called out Hornchurch, North Weald. Their squadrons were launched. He also ordered up 10 Group to activate Middle Wallop. Zooming out a bit to look at Park's chessboard of southern Britain, he now had two squadrons up high and forward over Canterbury. At their height, they could either take on the escorts or dive down at the bombers. Four more squadrons were up, two at Biggin Hill, just south and somewhat east of London, and two at Maidstone, which is east of Biggin Hill, right in the bombers' flight path, if they made straight for London, as they seemed to be. 603 Squadron from Hornchurch was instructed to head for Dover at 15,000 feet. With their speed, they would be flying right at the bombers, just as 92 and 72 squadrons from Biggin Hill made contact with the higher escorts. But their job was not to take out the bombers. No. As 92 and 72 mixed it up with the escorts, the fighting would descend as the fighters kept diving on each other. So 603 Squadron, purposefully arriving a little late, could go after the close-in escorts. Park, taking the long view, wanted to peel away and entangle the escorts, the higher-flying ones and the ones close-in, which would leave the bombers to fly on alone towards London. In essence, he wanted to bring the bombers in, deny them London, and then have a crack at them, all the way to and then from the capital. That was the formula for wiping out an entire bomber formation, if he could pull it off. But the oncoming German bomber formations, any of them, might change direction 
at any time. They've done it before. Park was so focused on the Capitol and the direct path that led to it, he realized that he left his northern airfields open to attack. But his setup, if the Germans continued on to London, was solid. He didn't want to start dismantling it now. So at 11.25, he called up 12 Group and told them he wanted a big wing heading for Gravesend, which is east of London. If any of the raiders went further north, they would probably fly up the Thames, as usual. If so, the big wing, 56 fighters in all, led by Douglas Barter, could take them sunward. The first oncoming German formation looked around and could not help but feel relatively safe with their 109 escorts. JG-27 and 52 were out ahead on a sweep. JG-53 was overhead, and JG-3 was in close support. But then bomber lead Alois Lindmar remembered that, due to fuel limitations, if any fighting before London came, his escorts would be forced to head home soon after. The bombers crossed over Folkestone, west of Dover, at 11.36 a.m. But now it was time for Gehring to make his move, one he hoped was clever. When the bombers were crossing over Folkestone, Gehring had 21 ME-109s take off, but they were Gehring's surprise for the day. Each one had a 550-pound bomb underneath, and they would make for London. With their speed, they would get there before Linmar and his bomber formation. The idea was for this special unit to bomb London and hopefully distract fighter command from the slower-moving but more threatening approaching raid. His unit would then act as normal fighters over London and provide protection. At 11.42 a.m., more formations were plotted. Park guessed they were coming in the same way, heading for the same destination. So he would deal with them like he was dealing with the earlier formations. But the fighters already launched would not have the fuel or ammo to deal with these new raids. So six more squadrons were launched, with four more still in reserve. At 11.50 a.m., the two squadrons from Biggin Hill, the first to be launched, were over Canterbury, as instructed. At 25,000 feet, they found themselves 6,000 feet over the German bomber formation, and 3,000 feet over their escorts. They let the Germans fly under them, and then turned around, preparing to bounce them out of the sun. On their first pass, at least four ME-109s were taken out. The British fighters continued their dive, making for the bombers. With perfect timing, 603 Squadron then came on and engaged the close-in escorts. There was now general chaos among the fighters. But the bombers were still in their formation. Linmar had drilled his men and had explained over and over that staying in their formation would be their best chance to survive if they ever lost their escorts. Now their escorts were behind them taking on 92, 72, and 603 squadrons. Park was happy with these results. Now it was time for the bombers. 
253 and 501 squadrons from Kenley that had taken off earlier under his orders were approaching the bombers, head on. It was 12.05. The two squadrons flew right at the bombers, but again, their discipline and formation held. Two hurricanes from 501 were taken out by Lindmar's gunners. Four more squadrons, 229, 303 from Northolt, and 504 and 257 from North Weald, made passes and continued to harass the bombers, who still held their formation. They were losing planes, some of them damaged and unable to keep up, but Lindmar's men held together. Incredibly, the surviving German bombers of the first formation made their destination and dropped their bombs, more or less, on the railway lines between Clapham Junction and Battersea Power Station. Still being attacked on all sides, they saw dots in the air coming their way. They hoped they were 109 escorts coming in to save them. But it turned out to be Barter and his big wing of five squadrons. To Lindmar's disgust, this was the fifth time he had come across the supposedly last 50 Spitfires of Fighter Command. It was 12.09 p.m. The German bombers now turned and headed for home. The British fighters all around them were so numerous that they had to line up to make a pass at the Germans. By now, there were only 15 bombers left in the formation. Six had been taken out and four others were making their own way home as best they could, each alone. It was amazing that any of them survived. Gehring's hoped-for surprise of ME-109s with bombs attached underneath them managed to get in, drop their loads from a high altitude, and make it home. Park saw them on the screen, figured them for fighters, and left them alone. Their bombs did damage, but that was mostly luck. It was impossible to aim as they darted in and then out. However, 12 of the ME-109s that had been serving as escorts for the standard German bomber formations were lost that morning. It wouldn't be until the end of the day before Park realized that the completely exposed 15 bombers that made it to London actually had some of their number make it home. This took the tarnish off of his wife's birthday present. Still, it was an impressive feat of leadership and of seeing the battle in the air in all its possibilities and complexities. But of course, it was only Kesselring's feint. Surely the British airmen were tired and wouldn't be as sharp for the next go-round. In fact, as Lindmar's remaining bombers crossed the coast, the next wave was already collecting over Calais. It would consist of 114 bombers in five blocks, and as impressive as this was, the bombers were only there to get Fighter Command's attention. Kesselring still had the desire to destroy Fighter Command's planes and pilots. Then the size of future bombing formations wouldn't matter. They would be unhindered as they bombed London into submission. These bombers would go in the way the earlier formations did, but this time the fighter coverage would be four to one. Mostly free to hunt, 
with a few flying overhead and a few in close. 340 ME-109s and 20 ME-110s would escort the bombers and hopefully shoot down the remaining operational fighters the British had. At 1.45 p.m., the massive formations were plotted at Uxbridge. Churchill had gone down to the floor to congratulate the ladies on a job well done, but now he got out of their way as they went back to work. Looking at Park's chessboard again, he had already put up two squadrons over Sheerness, which is located on the northwest corner of the Isle of Sheppey, on the south side of the Thames Estuary. They were backed up by two more squadrons at Hornchurch and a further two at Kelmsford. Both are located just northeast of London. As the plot became clearer, Park could see the five blocks of German bombers coming in three columns. He then activated Kenley, which is just south of London, and reinforced the squadrons east of the capital. But again, being practical, he put a squadron over the docks in East London, and then used seven more squadrons to make a defensive line from Biggin Hill to Kenley. This line was just west of the Germans' predicted flight path, but this line, made up of fast fighters, could easily be shifted over to thwart the oncoming Germans. By 2.15 p.m., Park knew this was Kesselring's main thrust for the day. There couldn't be many more German planes still unused. So he called Stanmore, Dowding's headquarters, and asked for a big wing to reinforce Hornchurch. The Germans seemed to be doing the same thing that they had done that morning, but he decided to tweak his response based on the number of German fighters flying escort. He decided to wait for the most vulnerable point, what the Germans referred to as the big dreaded turn over London. At that point, the fighters were practically staring at their fuel gauges, and the bombers were just into their turns, having flown past their intended target in order to line up their bomb run. But Park knew he couldn't let all those escorts make it to London with their bombers. By then, the damage would be done, no matter how many German aircraft he took out. So, as soon as the German formations crossed the coast, he set about economically peeling away some of their fighters. First, he sent in 41 and 92 Spitfire squadrons, along with 222 Squadron at 2.15 p.m. They had the height and dove down on the 475 Luftwaffe aircraft. In one pass, 14 German aircraft were taken out for a loss of one British fighter. That had gone well enough, but Park had to be wary of his success. The Germans might panic and go after whatever targets could be found and then head for home. That would scatter and increase the damage to southern Britain and leave the German fighters free to hunt. That did not suit Park's desire. But the large formation, still in its three columns, came on. 607 Squadron then charged straight at the formation of the right-hand column. The few overhead and close-in escorts tried to keep the British away, but more squadrons showed up to engage them. Soon, 605 and 501 squadrons came in from the sides and took out a few more bombers.
Not long after this, the British squadrons separated into different directions. Some were low on fuel or ammo, but this maneuver also forced some of the German fighters to fly off in different directions, all of them away from the bombers. It was now 2.35 p.m., and Churchill and Park could see that all of 11 group squadrons were committed to battle or patrolling a vital location. Churchill had been silent during all this, letting Park do his job, but now he walked over and asked the question he had asked General Gamla on May 16th. What other reserves have we? Park, probably appearing as the very incarnation of Gamla, turned to the Prime Minister and said, There are none. Later, Park wrote that Churchill looked grave. Well, I might, Churchill wrote later. The odds were great, our margins small, the stakes infinite. But Park's nervousness was not due to having all his forces committed, or knowing that many of them would need to land soon. Things had gone well so far, but what Park needed was for Lee Mallory's big wing to be where he asked it to be. Park didn't like or trust Lee Mallory, and the feeling was mutual. But as he had been planning out his response to this second, larger raid, the big wing had become a vital part of his plan. The German escorts now were far fewer in number around the bombers, but they were still heading toward London. And as they came on, the other 19 squadrons Park already had in the air made for the German bombers. From Gravesend to the eastern part of London, the bombers were harassed. As things worked out, the right column, two of the five blocks of bombers, were hit the hardest. Four of the 19 fresh squadrons made for the center column. This meant that the left-hand column, again made up of two blocks of bombers, were mainly intact and now were joined by some of the 109s that had been free hunting. But those fighters and the left-hand column soon came under attack by three other squadrons. By 3 p.m., the big wing, made up of 49 fighters, were close by and made for the left-hand column. But they didn't have the height yet, as they were only called on 55 minutes ago. Adolf Gallen, the German ace, and his 109s saw the climbing squadrons and dove on them. At least three British fighters were taken out. Douglas Barter was again incensed at being activated too late to show what his big wing could do. By now, Gallen and his were low on fuel, so they turned and headed for home. But the bombers he had been trying to protect had made it to their target, the Surrey Commercial Docks of East London. The bombers were practically alone, but about to start their bomb run. As they approached, they were met with cloud cover over the entire area. Their nerves strained beyond endurance. The bombers turned and started the journey home, yet to drop their bombs. Still being chased, they soon dropped their loads over Kent and crossed the channel. The other bomber blocks found their main targets obscured by the clouds as well and ended up dropping their bombs on the return flight home. As these bombers flew over Kent around 3.15 p.m., their escorts joined up with them for the flight back over the channel. But still, 
all the British fighters that could joined in the harassment of the bombers and their escorts. It was then that the lights on the tote board at Uxbridge began to change to ordered to land, or landed and refueling. The day's attacks seemed to be over. They weren't. At 3.05 p.m., a raid was plotted heading for Portsmouth, and 152 Squadron was activated. They got to the unescorted bombers as they were heading home and managed to down one and damage another. But it could have easily been a massacre for the Germans. It should have. For Park, this was the perfect example of how the day went. There were too many inexperienced squadron leaders, too few interceptions, and his pilots were still chasing after stragglers, focusing on a single kill and not staying with the main plan. That was what Park took away from September 15th, a day that would become known as the Battle of Britain Day. Although exhausted, like everyone else, Park stayed a little longer in his control room, but all it served him was to witness another close call. At 5.25 p.m., a large raid was plotted, so five squadrons lifted off, but it turned out to be only 13 planes. It was Air Pro Boons Group 210 going after the factories at Woolston again, but the bombers went in too high and too fast, and missed their targets completely. As before, both sides claimed an impossible number of kills that day. The British claimed 200 victories, which Park knew was way off, but was too tired to start yelling at everyone. In truth, the RAF had downed 56 German aircraft. 81 German crewmen were killed, 31 wounded, and 63 were taken prisoner. It took the Luftwaffe a few days to get their story out, but they eventually claimed 79 British planes had been shot down. The truth was far more modest. 27 British aircraft had been downed, and 13 pilots had been killed. One was taken prisoner. Both sides lost roughly the same number of fighters. It was the German bombers that suffered. Total reported losses to date were 662 and 1,067, respectively. Kesselring, for all his energy, brilliance, and learning as he went, had only managed to come full circle. Fighter command was not broken. The ME-109s could not adequately protect their bombers or constantly get the best of fighter command. And Britain was still defiant. Something had to be done. The next day, Gehring called a conference at Karen Hall, but no new ideas were forthcoming, and the decisions made that day did not spring from the realities of the last two months. But it didn't matter. On September 17th, five copies of a beautifully bound order went out from Hitler's supreme headquarters to the high commands of the Army, Navy, and Luftwaffe. It said that the order that made S-Day the launching of Sea Lion as September 21st was postponed until further notice.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When I said in the House of Commons the other day that I thought it improbable that the enemy's air attack in September could be more than three times as great as it was in August. I would not, of course, referring to barbarous attacks upon the civil population, but to the great air battle which is being fought out between our fighters and the German Air Force. You will understand that whenever the weather is favorable, Waves of German bombers, protected by fighters, often three or four hundred at a time, surge over this island, especially the promontory of Kent, in the hopes of attacking military and other objectives by daylight. However, they are met by our fighter squadrons, and nearly always broken up, and their losses average three to one in machines and six to one in pilots. This effort of the Germans to secure daylight mastery of the air over England is, of course, the crux of the whole war. So far, it has failed conspicuously. It has cost them very dear, and we have felt stronger, and are actually and relatively a good deal stronger than when the hard fighting began in July. There is no doubt that Herr Hitler is using up his fighter force at a very high rate, and that if he goes on for many more weeks, he will wear down and ruin this vital part of his air force. That will give us a very great advantage. On the other hand, for him to try to invade this country without having secured mastery in the air would be a very hazardous undertaking. Nevertheless, all his preparations for invasion on a great scale are steadily going forward. Several hundreds of self-propelled barges are moving down the coast of Europe 
from the German and Dutch harbors to the port of northern France, from Dunkirk to Brest, and beyond Brest to the harbors, the French harbors in the Bay of Biscay. Besides this, convoys of merchant ships in tens and dozens are being moved through the Straits of Dover into the Channel, dodging along from port to port under the protection of the new batteries which the Germans have built on the French shore. There are now considerable gatherings of shipping in the German, Dutch, Belgian and French harbors all the way from Hamburg to Brest. Finally, there are some preparations made of ships to carry an invading force from the Norwegian harbor. Behind these clusters of ships or barges, there stand very large numbers of German troops awaiting the order to go on board and set out on their very dangerous and uncertain voyage across the sea. We cannot tell when they will try to come. We cannot be sure that in fact they will try at all. But no one should blind himself to the fact that a heavy, full-scale invasion of this island is being prepared with all the usual German thoroughness and method, and that it may be launched at any time now upon England, upon Scotland, or upon Ireland, or upon all three. Uh, if this invasion is going to be tried at all, it does not seem that it can be long delayed. The weather may break at any time. Besides this, it is difficult for the enemy to keep these gatherings of ships waiting about indefinitely, while they are bombed every night by our bombers, and very often shelled by our warships, which are waiting for them outside. Therefore, we must regard the next week or so as a very important week for us in our history. It ranks with the days when the Spanish Armada was approaching the Channel, and Drake was finishing his game of bowls or when Nelson stood between us and Napoleon's Grand Army at Boulogne. We've read about all this in the history book, but what is happening now is on a far greater scale and a far more consequence to the life and future of the world and its civilization than these brave old days of the past. Every man and woman will therefore prepare himself to do his duty, whatever it may be, with special pride and care. Our fleets and flotillas are very powerful and numerous. Our air force is at the highest strength it has ever reached, and it is conscious of its proved superiority, not indeed in numbers, but in men and machines. 
Our shores are well fortified and strongly manned. And behind them, ready to attack the invaders, we have a far larger and better equipped mobile army than we have ever had before. Besides this, we have more than a million and a half men of the Home Guard who are just as much soldiers of the regular army in status as the Grenadier Guard and who are determined to fight for every inch of the ground in every village and in every street. It is with devout but sure confidence that I say, let God defend the right. These cruel, wanton, indiscriminate bombings of London are, of course, a part of Hitler's invasion plan. He hopes by killing large numbers of civilians and women and children that he will terrorize and cow the people of this mighty imperial city and make them a burden and anxiety to the government and thus distract our attention unduly from the ferocious onslaught he is preparing. Little does he know the spirit of the British nation or the tough fiber of the Londoner whose forebears played a leading part in the establishment of parliamentary institutions and who have been bred to value freedom far above their lives. This wicked man, the repository and embodiment of many forms of soul-destroying hatred, this monstrous product of former wrongs and shame, has now resolved to try to break our famous island race by a process of indiscriminate slaughter and destruction. What he has done is to kindle a fire in British hearts here and all over the world which will glow long after all traces of the conflagrations he has caused in London have been removed. He has lighted a fire which will burn with a steady and consuming flame until the last vestiges of Nazi tyranny have been burnt out of Europe and until the old world and the new can join hands to rebuild the temples of man's freedom and man's honor upon foundations which will not soon or easily be overthrown. This is a time for everyone to stand together and hold firm, as they are doing. I express my admiration for the exemplary manner in which all the air raid precaution services of London are being discharged, especially the fire brigades whose work has been so heavy and uh, also dangerous. All the world that is still free marvels at the composure and fortitude with which the citizens of London are facing and surmounting the great ordeal to which they are subjected, the end of which, or the severity of which, cannot yet be foreseen. It is a message of good cheer to our fighting forces on the seas 
in the air and in our waiting armies, in all their posts and stations, that we send them from this capital city. They know that they have behind them a people who will not flinch or weary of the struggle, hard and protracted as though it will be, but that we shall rather draw from the heart of suffering itself the means of inspiration and survival, and of a victory won not only for ourselves, but for all, a victory won not only for our own time, but for the long and better days that are to come. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.